I am Plata on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Liz Magor joins me now, the sculptor, considered one of the most important contemporary artists of the last 50 years, and I'll ask her about that distinction given her by others, has just published Subject to Change, Writings and Interviews. The book brings together catalog statements, essays, conversations, lecture notes, correspondence, and unpublished writing over her distinguished career. It's uh, often fascinating to see how she views her own work and how her ideas evolve over the years. We see an artist who says she doesn't enjoy writing, writes so evocatively about art, about making art, and about how it might be received by a wider audience. We see a feminist artist in a settler uh, colonial society think deeply about her place where she lives and what she is contributing to society itself. Liz Magor is the recipient of the Governor General's Award in Visual and Media Arts, the Ordain Prize, and uh, the Gershon Iskowitz Prize. Her work has been exhibited all over the world, and in 2019 she was named Chevalier de l'Ordre des Arts et des Lettres by the uh, government of the French Republic. The book is published by Concordia University Press. She joined me from where she works at the Parker Street Studios here in Vancouver less than two weeks ago. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program Liz Magor. Liz Magor, good morning. Hi, Joe. Thanks for joining us. Um, the, the title of the book is Subject to Change. Do, do you find that over the, the years, your opinion of your work, is, is that subject to change as well? Um, totally. And, uh, you know, over the hours or over the days, uh, it's subject to change. Uh, we picked that title because it was uh, in the, one of the very first things I wrote, which would be back in 1971 or two. I was writing about why I liked working in the studio, why I liked making work, and it was because um, the world around me was changing all the time, and it was it was kind of made me anxious. So mm. when I work in the studio, I feel that I'm part of that that kind of ongoing process, and I kind of have a sense that I'm not such a victim of change, but I'm sort of an agent of change. It's not an agent of change in a political sense, but just that I'm manipulating material so I feel um, better. And so that title came from that. So change is a big part of why I make art, and it's also a big part of how I work. You mentioned working in a studio. I was going to ask you later on, but I'll ask you now. Um, you don't find your work portable, if you will. I mean, if, if, if the fire alarm went off in the building, you couldn't uh, immediately work, say, in the parking lot or, say, somewhere else easily, or could you? Part of it I could. I'm just going to knock on wood here so that the fire doesn't start. <laughs> you know, I'm at 1000 Parker, which is an old oh, wooden yeah. building, so so we think about fire when mm. we're in this building. Um, I can do some parts of everything in non-studio spaces, but... The studio, as I know it, is it's like a really compact toolbox or something, and everything I might want to try out is available to use, you know, material one. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and it, it, it's obviously comfortable. Um, you know where everything is. Um, yeah. Does that take long to to say uh, create or establish? In my case, probably, yeah, because, um, so I've been in the same space for over 20 years, mm. um, and it gets better and better. I, I would say in my case, because 
often I did I didn't believe that I could keep going, so I wouldn't invest. I didn't set up a big fancy studio at the beginning. I would work kind of from the seat of my pants, basically. And so it took me a long time to feel <clears throat> um, uh, secure, I guess, as an artist. And so um, in the 20 years, I, I have got it to a good good condition. But for many years, I would just have, <clears throat> um, you know, pretty crummy materials and tools. Is that a part of the guilt that, that you, you – there's an interview in, in the book that uh, – a conversation that you have with Ian Carr Harris, um, mm-hmm. and, and you, you, you tell him about feeling guilty as an artist. Mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. part of it, do you think? It might be. You know, that's, that's part of my generation's legacy is that we felt in the 80s – and when I read that interview, I thought, oh, that guilt, that, that discussion about guilt that's in that interview with Ian from the 80s, that maybe doesn't make sense now because um, so, so what I was going to say is that we could see that art was being sucked into the monetary system in a serious way and kind of an irretrievable way <clears throat> and that money was playing a big role in in how artists worked. Um, we used to work kind of the way poetry is now where nobody really cared that much and mm. You could work without thinking about the market, without thinking about paying a lot of money for your studio. And so as the uh, as commerce took over, as capitalism sort of discovered art as the great, you know, original Bitcoin sort of thing, um, we started to feel funny about being artists. And we talked about it a lot, about uh, whether you could be an artist and avoid the market, mm-hmm. whether you could turn your back on it. So that's what we're talking about there. Um, I think by now, <clears throat> I don't know for sure, but um, it seems that that happened, and it's a fait accompli that art now is part of uh, investment strategies and um, you know capitalist um, um, approaches to mm-hmm. wealth, building wealth, and so that's a, a, a sad thing. And, and so uh, some people might ask you, people from elsewhere even, um, what's kept you in Vancouver because it's incredibly expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, I would assume that that's something that, that, that's um, been on one's mind as an artist, um, not not just in recent years, but, but going back to the 80s, say. Mm-hmm. Has it? Well, in the 80s, I went to Toronto. I so see. I spent all of the 80s in Toronto. That wasn't because Vancouver was expensive. It was more because Vancouver was asleep or seemed to be kind of just too sleepy for me. Um, it also seemed that that art in Vancouver was turning in a direction that was towards photography, and um, photography with a conceptual aspect to it. And I didn't see that I could contribute to that discussion. And I met these sculptors from Toronto, they came to do an exhibition at the Vancouver Art Gallery. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, um, I'm going to go to where these guys live, you know, where sculpture is talked about and practiced. And so I left for about 12 years. And then I came back because my family's here and <clears throat> I wanted to be around my mother while she while she uh, was older. Mm-hmm. And uh, the fact that it's expensive here, so, you know, when you live here for a long time, you, you gradually, you just, 
you absorb each increase in cost. Right. Inch by inch. It's not so difficult to be here long term as it is to move here from another place. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess again, yeah, that, that, that's right about it. most people I know, artists or not. Yeah. Um, yeah. You mentioned uh, photography, but you, you did take up photography, and and it's it's represented in the book. Um, these, these various uh, photographs that you took, um, uh, with, with regards to Civil War reenactments. Right. Um, yeah. Were you? Uh, did you take that up out of say interest in in the the the, the medium, or? Um, were you always interested, say, in photography? I was never interested in photography, but but I used it as a tool. And I also um, took a took photography when I was in school. Uh-huh. <clears throat> but that was a kind of reporter's photography. You know, it was taught by a photojournalist. And um, so we were using um, simple cameras with uh, fast film, black and white film, and you know, just a Pentax. It was none. It wasn't in the studio. It was on the street. So <clears throat> I always had that kind of camera, just as ca- the way people use their phone now for a camera to quickly record something they want to think about. So I never got very technical. Didn't get very good at it. The most I did was get a slightly larger format, like a two and a quarter. I think I don't do it anymore. But I had a Hasselblad. So um, when I encountered these reenactors, <clears throat> I didn't know what to do with them. They were so kind of strange. Yeah, this was yeah. in the uh, early 90s. So strange and interesting that I at first just photographed them. And I also was photographing them so that I could um, compare them to photographs I had taken in the 60s. I, you know, when I first got my camera in the 60s, I took photographs of my friends who, in hindsight, you might call hippies. We didn't call ourselves hippies at the time. But just by looking at our clothes and everything, our lifestyle was sort of back to the land and very naive. And very naively, we we did things like uh, we were in canoes, we had moccasins. And so there was a kind of an overlay of indigenous culture that we assumed in a kind of a respectful way. But in hindsight, it was a appropriation, much milder than I see in the reenactors. So then I saw these reenactors appropriating Native culture in a really complete and thorough and crazy way, and so I started photographing them. um, And so some of those works, and I wrote about it a lot because I was trying to figure it out. And so a lot of those uh, texts and those photographs are in this book. Yeah, I... I, um have have a, a, a sort of passing interest with, with with the civil war and and you know the, the photographs of matthew brady for example i always found interesting yeah. mm-hmm. um but I, I i love what you have to say or, or how you work out why people do this even now and, and people mm-hmm. have been doing you know reenactments for you know I, I would assume since the the end of the civil war um it's a very strange and a phenomenon and you know you, you're writing it about about it say 30 years ago um, mm-hmm. The political climate has changed a great deal, that it takes on a different meaning, doesn't it? Yes, it does, yeah. And in fact, I was photographing all kinds of reenactors in the 90s. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, um, you know, it's it's very profound, I would say, and it's very extensive. And 
there's really interesting, I call it interesting, some people might consider it offensive, but I sort of want to take a kind of a, curi- a an attitude of curiosity towards this. So what I was going to say is there's, <clears throat> sorry, Mark. anyhow, um, in Germany, you know, there's reenactors who still reenact First Nations in a kind of a, a totally romantic way. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, yeah, so I, I photographed all kinds of reenactors and uh, gradually became aware that they were mostly men and mostly interested in battle and war. Yeah. No matter what their persona was, they would find a way to have a fight with somebody else. <laughs> <clears throat> and so um, eventually I started photographing people who were reenacting the First World War in very private situations that weren't open to the public. And I wormed my way into a couple of these and was pretty frightened by the fact that the bulk of the reenactors wanted to be um, Germans and not, uh, they wanted to be Prussians and uh, Germans yeah. and not um, allied forces. And um, I realized that there was something really kind of almost dangerous, dangerous for me to be alone with all these people in places, you know, that very remote places. Yeah. And it wasn't so playful as I'd found it originally when people were reenacting the fur trade or yeah, yeah. Um, different things. And so I kind of quit at that point. I would have, you know, if I was a journalist or actually a writer or something like that, it was interesting enough to continue. But it, w- it started just gradually get outside of my field. Yeah. So what did it do to the rest of your art? Did, did you find after, <clears throat> after you left it? That it it's a, I don't know if inspired is the right word, but did it, it, it uh, give you a new ideas, say, or n- new ways yeah, to work? Yeah, idea, ideas is a better word. Um, you know, it's not hard to extend it to material. So the way people fashion themselves or change themselves um, psychologically, they use material for that. So they use costumes and makeup, and and they use you know tents and locations. So they're actually in the material world, but they're doing it in their imagination, largely. The work is really going on in their mind, which is the sort of the metaphysical, I guess. So that's pretty easy to extend to the material in the studio. Um, and I've been a mold maker for a long, long time <clears throat> in the sense that part of the way I make a sculpture is to take, make a mold of something. Um, it's a bit like taking a photograph of mm, something. Right. <clears throat> and then reproducing it so that it can be in the sculpture kind of working as an image, but also working as a, <clears throat> an idea. So it, it, often I'm thinking about what is the difference between that original thing and this cast thing. I don't try to make the cast thing so realistic that it would fool you, so I'm not really a, I don't know, I was going to say prop maker. Yeah. Um, yeah you're not mimicking... Of, yeah, I'm not totally mimicking. And in fact, what's interesting is how easy it is to fool the eye. So mm. I could have <clears throat> my my cast could have lots of errors, and my color could be really wrong and and crude. But um, uh, the 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 eye will still sort of identify the thing as a rock or a banana, or you know, um, the the eye will tell the brain what it is, and it will name it even if it's not true. Yeah, yeah. So so. Yeah, so this whole thing about the the, the, the um, uh, 
the tri- the tricks that um, the reenactors would use to yeah. trick themselves and to, to to just go into this fantasy that that is that does operate that is an interesting thing to think about in sculpture. Uh, Liz, what do you, how do you view the role of the critic? I mean, is the critic, uh, say, a formal thing where it's 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 someone's job to to regularly consider art, um, another artist even, or or can, can a critic be someone who just wanders into a gallery one day and and um, looks at say one's art and and say possess an opinion, informed oh, sure. or otherwise? Yeah, yeah. I don't know that 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 we need to call them critics. Um, we could just call them, I think, you know, we could call them interested viewers or mm. viewers with, with a mind. I think anybody with a mind <laughs> or, uh, can look at something and think about it and come to some either misunderstanding or some opinion. That's, that's sort of what, what, what we're supposed to do in a way, you know, in the world. We're supposed to kind of think about things. I suppose I don't know that we always have to come to judgment, though. Maybe um, I like the process of, of inquiry or the process of asking questions. So, uh, with good critics, the people we call critics, I'm kind of more interested in the people who write from curiosity, with quite intense questioning um, uh, involved, and less interested in people who are doing a lot of um, uh, judging and building of hierarchies. I'm really not interested in an art historical critique where you stack people up about who came first mm. and who copied who yeah. and who was influenced by whom, um, because that's pretty incomplete. The information for that kind of arrangement is so incomplete um, that we don't have all the, uh, we don't know really everything that went on in any particular era in the past because the recording of the participants was so incomplete. So uh, art history, well, you know, I'll say I'm not interested in art history, but there's sometimes I'm just very, you know, extremely interested in some particular writing from some art historians. But they're in the minority. As, As the minority of art critics are interesting to me, not very many of them are interesting to me. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned a moment ago about, uh, say, one misunderstanding the, the work of the artist. Um, yeah. Are you interested at all in hearing about that sometimes? I mean, people could come to conclusions as to, to what they think you were attempting to do. Yeah. Um, you must hear from them because of the Internet. Okay. Maybe people email you or something like that uh, um, more now than, say, 30 years ago. Does, does, that, um, does that, that take up a lot of your time, say? No, I stay away. So I stay away um, as much as possible. It's not that I want to curtail what people think or anything. It's just that it's not uh, pertinent to me. It's Mm. not my thinking. Um, So I'm kind of trying to question myself. I guess, again, that's what the book is comprised of, me trying to think around what I'm doing and be my own, um, to interview myself and interview the work or question the work and question myself. So I'm involved in that. It's not as though I'm sure about everything and I can't be influenced, but I want to do it in my own way. So, no, I'm not open to, um, I'm not open to suggestions of how to proceed. 
Well, what's fascinating as I read subject to change is, is the, the evolution is not the right word. I think the, the um, um, it's a process that, that um, I, I don't think you probably saw at the time, but, but it, it's, it, there is a great deal of growth, if you will. Um, and then there is a sort of, um, at times, a widening of interest. I don't know if that's the right way to put it. But um, did you find that, as you, you say, take the perspective of time and look back, mm-hmm. that um, there was there was some of that growth, if you will, or some development even? Mm-hmm. And I hadn't really noticed it because <clears throat> I don't do a lot of, I don't know, I was going to say I don't do a lot of retrospection, but I, I, I kind of do, but I don't um, go through my notes, I don't you know, have a diary, I yeah. don't, you know, I'm not always casting back to see how I'm doing, I'm really now, and um, so it, when Jeffrey Little, the editor, slowly started to gather these texts that I didn't even have in my files, really? um, I was a bit surprised and maybe I was pretty happy to see that I had yeah. <laughs> I had matured because oh but I was also a bit embarrassed by some of the early stuff in its naivete and its um, I don't know insecurity or I wasn't very confident there was so much I didn't know about art and there was so much I was hesitant about in terms of um, whether uh, there's a beautiful dog walking down the hall here yeah um, so I was glad to see that I also gained confidence as the time went by, and I think that means that even that the art got better. So not only did I feel more comfortable as a person, but then I was more comfortable as an artist. And, um, you know, I have applied myself to, to, this, to this work in a, in a serious, ongoing way for all these years. So, God, we would hope I would... Um, mature and get better yeah what, what, what i think inspires a lot of people when they read the book what will inspire them i should say certainly it gave me pause for thought is is the the um that you are somebody who doesn't um rest on the laurels perhaps or or you're not somebody who is uh, 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 done with say thinking of new ideas or getting inspired by new things and I think a lot of people lose sight of that, not just in art, but I think in life itself, mm-hmm. where, where they think they reach a certain point or a certain age even, mm-hmm. and they think that, that that's it, I know everything. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't want to be one of those people. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> and most people I know are not like that. I mean, um, I guess you choose the people you hang out with. So the people yeah. I know, they're mostly artists, and they, they stay... Um, they stay curious forever and experimenting. So sometimes it's hard to be an artist, and so sometimes people develop a sort of a tough exterior or a kind of, um, you know, an arrogance um, that's just a, a cover-up, really, for uh, an unsureness. Always you don't know if what you're doing is worthwhile. Always you don't know that. And you always, almost every day you have to remember that um you have to remember, you're not taking up a lot of uh, space in the world. It's not a... Now, I'm, I, I'm near the washroom here, so that's the hand dryer. I'll just go down. Sorry, no, that, Joe, about that, the conditions that, here. No, that's fine. No, that's, that, um, that's where you work, and, and I find that this fascinating, that you know, you're working yeah. amongst artists, and then I think it's cool. 
they were all, I guess they're all taking their lunch break. Um, <laughs> what I was going to say is that um, having a studio and making like a painting or a sculpture is not the same as making a Hollywood movie. You mm -hmm. know, it's not taking up tons of resources and materials and, you know, then needing the affection and attention of the whole public. It's a quite a modest activity, even when it's done at a very, um, you know, endowed level. It's still very modest compared to lots of industries. So I don't, you know, I don't see the need to say I've arrived. I don't see the need to have a measure of my success that comes from outside because really I'm paying the bills mm -hmm. myself. Um, you, uh, you know, so I'm, so, uh, and most artists are doing that. They're supporting their work through whatever means they have. And I think they should be able to do whatever they want. Yeah. That's the beauty of it. That's why it is like poetry in a way. Yeah. These yeah. days I'm listening more to poets talk about their work. I listen to a lot of podcasts and there's some really good ones with writers and poets and they're, they're kind of inspiring in their independence, I guess. Yeah, I talk to artists and uh, more poets and artists, and I and I find well writers in general. Yeah. Uh, I find that because the, their work is so solitary, and I think the the, the artist can can relate um, that um, something new comes out because they're able now to come out of whatever studio they're working in or their writing space and uh -huh. talk about it for the first time, if you will. Some people find that difficult, though. I mean, some people find it hard to, say, reflect on their work after they've completed it because they say they're working on something else now. Or, oh, yeah. or they're so used to the solitary part of it that they can't relate to people in general, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you choose your profession yeah. uh, for certain reasons, and then <clears throat> you, don't, you don't always uh, know that all, so many aspects are going to come with that choice. Um, do you... Um, um, I was going to ask you what you find rewarding about your work. I mean, do, do, do the awards, do they, do they mean anything or mean a lot, say? Uh, no, probably not. No, I'd say probably not. Um, no, probably not. <laughs> um, you know, in a kind of a, a small, tickling way, it's, it's hard to say. How would I feel if I hadn't got the attention I've had or the support I've had, how would I feel? Yeah. Um, I might be angrier than I am now. So, you know, when I say these things, I don't feel them too much. It could be because I have them. Um, I might feel the lack of them more than I feel the presence of them. So, um, because, you know, I, I have had some fallow periods where I thought, oh, it's over for me. You know, I'm it's over. I, I can't support the work. I can't. Nobody cares. I, you know, I think it, it's, um, I'm finished. And then, um, in the last, I would say, 10 years, I've had such a good boost up. And, you know, I'm 74, so that big boost up where I, I started to feel really supported in a consistent way. That started quite late in life. Um, I've always been supported in a modest way, mm -hmm. but now I'm supported in a regular. I can count, kind of count on being able to pay the rent. Mm -hmm. And having the studio for 22 years, the rent is now like four times what it was when I started. So I'm always having to need, I'm always looking for more support in a way. So 
so I've supported it quite myself for, for the for most of that time. And so if I'd got to this point with no um, support, yeah, I would be angry. Yeah. I would yeah. be I would be pissed off. So that's my answer to you about awards. Yeah. Um, it, uh, some of us who live in Vancouver or, or, or will, will likely be familiar with, with um, the public art that you've created. Mm-hmm. Um, th- three pieces in particular that I can think of that that, uh, that I'm that I've seen and 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 know. Um, do you say? I'm trying to remember now after reading Subject to Change. You don't really talk about that, do you? No, I don't think I I wrote about those works. So, you know, the writing was never to be in a book. It was always, um, oh, there was some need for it, maybe in a catalog, or maybe I'm writing, and some of the pieces are about other artists' mm-hmm. work. Um, so the writing, and some of the writing is um, just me to try to figure out what I've done, so it's for my own purposes. But for the public works, for some reason, I didn't write about them, so there's nothing, nothing there. Um, I was, I was going to ask you about them, um, but but now that I think about it, I, I think it's I'm, I'm more interested to know what you think about public art in Vancouver. Um, you, you see some of it as you go around town, I'm sure, like mm-hmm. all of us do. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think there's enough? Do you think there should be more? <laughs> uh, um, uh, I think there should be more good public art. You know, maybe bigger budgets. Maybe I see too many small things. Um, so everybody's doing something for thirty thousand or fifty thousand. That's hardly enough money to to really do something. Yeah. You know, I think all of mine were at least three hundred thousand, and even then, it's a real strain because you have to do something that can um, endure all the weather, and right, you have yeah. to pay really good people to produce this because it's bigger than the studio and all sorts of things. So, so 30,000, 50,000, you, you can't really do something enduring and substantial for that slight bit of money. So yeah, I guess I would say more public art with bigger budgets would be a good idea. You just alluded to something that I, another piece in the book that I found fascinating. It's from 1989, and and you're talking about um, curation and conservation. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're considering issues of access and longevity, longevity especially in in, in that piece. Um, there's one piece of yours um, whose name I forget now. I wrote it in my notes, but it's not on my sheet in front of me. Is it um, Time and Mrs. Tiber? Time and Mrs. Tiber? I think it was Dorothy Resistance. Oh yeah, Dorothy Resemblance. A uh, resemblance, pardon me. Yeah. And and so th- that piece in particular is in the National Gallery's uh, restricted list, which means that access to it is um, um, limited. Um, and and you write in the in in that piece from 1989 that that made you unhappy that you considered making a replica, um, so that it was accessible to to. Um, the wider audience, if you will, um, yeah. did, did that did that episode uh, did that influence the, the sort of art you made later, so that it would say uh, endure that the people could see it, could could access it um, later on? Um, uh, probably uh, it did. Uh, probably I took uh, a closer look at uh, conservation issues around work, so I. I know I spend more money on on 
on materials that are pH neutral mm. than I used to. So, you know, you can even, I used to just get my glue at Home Depot and now I buy better glue. Mm. But in the case of that work that they're speaking of, the reason they restricted is that people were stealing um, parts of it. They were all easy to pick up. Right. And I can't change that because it, it was about picking up, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So I can't glue them all together and still have the work I wanted. So I still make work that, ha- that has issues, let's say, that is maybe a bit hard to handle, but only because that vulnerability or that precarity or that nervousness is really part of the subject and I need it to be. So doing something in bronze is not as interesting to me as doing something made of paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so so it, it, um, one realizes though that paper is a lot um, won't say it lasts as long as bronze. Um, I know, uh, but but neither will my body last as long as bronze. So yeah. I'm kind of making work that has more of a relationship to a lifespan, a human lifespan, yeah. uh, or a vegetable lifespan, than I am to. Um, I don't know what other lifespan. Bronze can go, last for 1,500 years. Yeah. So when you look back at, at some of the pieces in Subject to Change, some that are that are not accessible now to you, if you will, if, if uh, you will, like uh, th- things that you, you can't see, um, do, do you miss them at all? Do, 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 do you have, um, uh, say, pleasant memories even? I mean, do you long for them to, to say, return, <laughs> if you will? Um. I have pleasant memories. Uh, in a funny way, I love everything I've ever made. You know, I feel love for them in yeah. a funny way. Um, but it doesn't mean I have to be near them um, or see them. I-, I love the memory of getting to know them. So each work starts from nothing. Getting to know each work, going from nothing to something. And so the process is sort of like light. It's like having a life. Like mm. when I'm making a work, I feel I'm really living my life because I'm um, doing everything I can to make something happen. And so I'm stretched and it's nice. And so for each work, when I look at it um, in in the reel or in a photograph, I remember that stretching. It's kind of like climbing a mountain or, you know, it's a kind of a feeling of satisfaction that you get from, from trying hard to do something. Um, so I have those feelings about them. So again, it doesn't sort of matter to me if other people see them or not, but I kind of do want them to stay in the world. It's not nice to have something thrown out. Nothing has been thrown out. Yeah. That that restricted thing, I'm not sure really if that work is as restricted. The other one that was in that essay, it was jars that were of fruit. That one's what I'm talking about now is called Time and Mrs. Tiber. And I found these jars of preserved fruit oh, in yeah, an they old... Were- they were, homestead house yeah. and they were rotten yeah, yeah. and so the uh, the National Gallery bought it and my interest was that the fruit was it was put in jars the same year I was born and it was doing a little bit better than I was and it looked like it was <laughs> going to make it and so I just thought this is it's a bit like today I read that Liz Truss is being compared to a head of lettuce oh yeah. Read, yeah yeah so it was a bit like that. So, but eventually the jars, while they were in the collection of the National Gallery, they developed botulism, mm. which is really, really, really poisonous. So, 
they uh, wanted to, to get rid of those jars. And I've worked with them to replace those jars and so on because I don't want the work to disappear. Yeah. But I also, they said they would irradiate them and kill all bacteria. And I said, well, then it's not. The work doesn't exist anymore if it is dead. So yeah. you know what I'm trying to say? That oh, yeah. Kind of, yeah. There's, uh, I like to, the works to be to have a life, but the life is not um, infinite. Yeah. yeah. And because, because I'm actually thinking about all the things that make our lives uh, beautiful and scary at the same time, so all that vulnerability in a person, not just in their body but in their mind and the relationship to things and people is really the content of my work. So I can't remove the form and the material from that subject. I can't make the form and the material un invulnerable yeah. or you know permanent and safe otherwise I would be I, w- I wouldn't be doing what I what I'm saying yeah that 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 piece I found you know I'm still thinking about it after reading it um, several days later um if if you're giving life in in terms of creating a piece of work what does it do to your own life i know a lot of artists create art to to become immortal if you will i mean <laughs> You don't know people. There's nobody like that. Do you think there are people like that? Oh, I think people create art to, to last longer than their life and, and to say, create a legacy. I mean, uh-huh. it, it, there are people like that, I'm sure. I mean, people write books to to, see, to be read hundreds of years from now. I think, I think, and, and I think that's more ego than anything, than craft even. But, but, but I think, um, I don't know, I, I think there's some people who do that. And, okay, but, but I, I would say they're in the minority because yeah, yeah. Um, even, you know, you might hope as a byproduct that something lasts. If you're, let's say you're writing a book, you hope it doesn't just end up in the bin after a year yeah. or on the, you know, the remainder shelf or something. But the writing of it, it can't, I don't know that it is, can be for longevity or for legacy. That's crackers. <laughs> but 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 you have been described, Liz, as somebody who is uh, one of the more important contemporary artists of the last fifty years. Um, when you hear things like that, when you hear praise like that, or, or um, uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, you know th- th- these things that, that that appear in one's bio, if you will, or in news reports, yeah. d- d- do you feel like that? No, no. You know that's just marketing language that somehow bled over to. <clears throat> to other measurements it's just it can't be there for, for first of all i'd say what does important mean mm. and no one could answer that i'm sure so that's just um bad thinking that's just not very thoughtful when you look back at, at your writing though that, that appears in subject to change um I guess some people will 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 read the book and find wisdom in there. I mean, aspiring artists, I'm sure, or young people. Do you do you see some of that wisdom itself? Um, wisdom, <laughs> Joe. All these questions are you're questioning me as though I'm like a sage up on a mountain. <laughs> um, well, and yeah. I hope there's nothing in the book that. Indicates I think of myself that way. No, I, 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 I aspire I, I, to that. No, I don't think you do. But I mean, I can't help but read the book and think, man, you know, th- th- that's that's smart, or, or that's you know, that's useful, if you will. Or I mean, there was a couple of things in here that I found um, incredibly edifying, and and I thought, you know, that's a great way to look at life. 
how did she get there? Okay, okay. Well, and, that's good to hear. I'm glad. I'm glad that's here. And so, do, do you do, you don't see it that way? I guess do you? I hope it's a bit that way. I hope. Yeah. I hope it is that way. You know, it's a bit um, funny. That it's quite a fat book. You know, it's fatter than you would think. Um, and so, and a lot goes into making a book. So you kind of hope that it's wor- worthy. That the what's inside is worthy of of this this uh, nice thing that you pick up. You know, uh. it's like, yeah. I hope so. And I hope that I'm using my brain as much as possible. And I hope I'm proceeding as an intelligent person, and um, not as a person who's who's um, who doesn't ask questions. Or I hope I'm not proceeding as a person who accepts um, the culture as we find it. You know. So yeah. I hope that that um, because I don't find the culture that the culture as we know it is not that interesting. Oh. Um, so. Being an artist, and I think lots of artists are like this. They're trying to to add to add something to the culture as we know it, to popular culture, in a way that is um, more complex, maybe more problematic. So, yeah, I hope it comes across as serious, intelligent thinking. Yeah. That's not not like theory, not like uh, I'm not an intellectual or a theorist or a critic or I, I'm a, I'm a, you know, a pretty average person, but I'm pushing as hard as I can. That's what I mean. Yeah, I mean it, it, the things in the book that I, I probably uh, um, don't understand or don't agree with, but I, I found the way that you work out your th- thinking on various things um, incredibly interesting, and it made me think about say other things in one's own life, if you will. Yeah. And and made me reconsider how I look at art or how I look at life itself. And okay, that that's good. That's what I enjoyed about subject to change, and 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 I think, um, I think that's where the wisdom comes from, if you will, or the 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 point of, say, inspiring the reader to challenge their own thinking as you do. Uh huh. Yeah. And and. Um, you know, I, I've kept you longer than I said I would. I just, I, I, I could talk all afternoon with you. Um, okay. But before I let you go, though, um, one last thing, if, if, if um, you'll allow me. Um, when, when you work, um, whatever you're doing at the moment, um, can you see what it's like when it, when it's finished, if you will? I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think. Is the thing that's in your mind when you're creating something? Is, is it? Is it always, does it always end up the finished product? Kind of, in a way. So I usually start with uh, almost like a condition or a relationship, a condition of a relationship. And by that I don't mean human relationship. I mean I start with a condition of a relationship between a a thing and another thing. Um, You know, like roughly speaking, I'll say this thing seems to have power over this thing or this thing seems to help this thing. The way an ashtray helps a cigarette. Mm-hmm. Um, so I start with that relationship, and I think, how can I explore that relationship and make a, kind of an image of it that endures? So, um, so my first, my first. So I'm bringing something that's immaterial, that's a condition or a relationship. I'm trying to bring it into material, into an image, more or less. And usually the first go at it is pretty crummy or obvious. 
and then I just do iteration after iteration, keep keep refining it, keep hammering it, kind of till I want to get out all kind of cliche parts. I want to get rid of all um, parts that aren't doing lots of work. Again, it's like writing a poem where, with that economy of means, you don't have very you don't have as many words in a poem usually as you do in prose. Mm-hmm. So each word in a poem is working really, really hard yeah. to be as um, to have as much scope as possible. So I work that way, and so gradually, I, I get the thing made. And it, often I don't have an image when I start um, because certainly it develops, you know, from step through step through step. So, uh, so no, I don't start with an image and work towards the image. I start with a condition, and I'm trying to capture that condition in an image, but I don't know what the image is when I start. I talk to novelists sometimes, and they, 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 they talk about um, having an idea and then say, as they're writing the idea, take on a life of its own and sort of lead them along. Does, does that happen to you? Yeah, it's a bit like that, too. Yeah. Um, so this condition I'm talking about, then I'll explore what do I mean by the ashtray and the cigarette have a relationship. Um, so I'll explore it, and it does uh, open up. And so that's when it has a life of its own yeah. in a funny way. You, you mentioned working there uh, on Parker Street. Um, it, uh, I've interviewed other artists there. Uh, in yeah. in the past, what's your own relationship with the other people there? I mean, I, I'm assuming because you're all artists and you're all working in the same thing, it's like working in any other office. I mean, if if you are in, a, in an office where it's all accountants, for example, um, uh-huh. there, there's some interaction, but it's it's generally <laughs> solitary. Um, yeah. What is it like for you there? Do you know what surprised me? Last year I discovered there were over 300 tenants in these buildings. Um, so it's associated, I mean, people uh, associated in their mind with visual artists, yeah. but I, I don't think of the 300, I don't think even half of them are, are artists. But in the maybe the last 10 or 12 years, the building's been associated with visual arts because of the culture crawl. Uh-huh. So many artists use their studios also as their kind of their retail outlet during the culture crawl, and they are a very tight group. Um, there's other things. There's, um, I think it's called Parker Salon, mm-hmm. and a group of people have a gallery called Gallery George. And so those people who use their studios in a big way, you know, that they, they produce there and they market their work in the building and they sell their work in the building they kind of use the building in a different way and so they see each other and they're with each other in a way that i'm not with them Mm -hmm. because i only produce in my space so i'm not going to meetings about exhibitions with everybody um hi so then um but there are some artists there so the minority of artists in the building are like me Mm-hmm. The majority are culture crawl artists, so they have posters and they have their names and they have their phone numbers and everything. And I really like to keep um, the production and the the marketing very separate because when I'm working, I don't want to be thinking about will this thing be acceptable to anybody? Mm-hmm. Will this thing be liked as much as I like it? Is this thing any good? I just kind of want to get the thing to be alive and then maybe 
worry about its viability way later. So I, I like to keep it separate. But I also have the privilege of having galleries that represent my work, so I'm able to keep the marketing separate. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I, yeah. I do think that if you if you can work with the marketing separate, you maybe have a better chance to keep them separate, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Like if you bang them together right away. In other words, if you make work for a certain audience, you'll be limited to that work for a long time. You won't be very free to change your work. Yeah, yeah. Um, Liz, I could talk all afternoon, as I said a moment ago, but um, I'll let you go. It's, it's been such gr- great fun for me to talk to you, and, and uh, I've enjoyed the conversation and, and this book. Thanks for, thanks for your time today, and, and good luck with the book. Okay, okay, Joe. Thank you. The book is called Subject to Change, Writings and Interviews. It's published by Concordia University Press. Its author, Liz Magor, joined me on the line from here in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Planta.